Welcome to the Hirschfeld Century Podcast. My name is David Leopold. I'm the creative director of the Al Hirschfeld Foundation. And I'm Catherine Eastman, the archives manager. And today we are talking about red hot, juicy... Scandals. And Hollywood scandals. Yeah. Not your everyday scandals, but Hollywood scandals. Yeah. Sometimes everyday scandals can be just as juicy as Hollywood scandals. We're not asking for any personal information, Catherine. No, okay, fine. <laughs> <laughs> fine. No, I've been wanting to uh, do a scandals-themed uh, episode because I think it's a lot of fun, and people love true crime, and it's okay to talk about these days. So we decided to dig up all the, the juiciest Hollywood scandals and uh, connect them to Hirschfeld. We are combining two of your favorite things. That's right. Murder, murder and <laughs> Hirschfeld. <laughs> now, as far as I know, Hirschfeld was never a suspect in a murder, mm. never witnessed a murder. Um, but he did draw some murders. He did draw some murders. I mean, all the way back to, in a 1929, 1929-1930 MGM yearbook, there was the Bishop murder case. Mm. Uh, for uh, Dutton, uh, the publisher, he did a drawing of T.J. Davidson, the author of Murder in the Laboratory. Mm. Uh, and he did Murder at the Vanities, uh, The Murder Man with Spencer Tracy, of course, Murder in the Cathedral, right. uh, a federal theater project. Um, Little yes. Murders. Yes. He did uh, Dial M for Murder. Right. I mean, so all the uh, really sort of classic ones. Yep. Um, and I'm sure the Anatomy of a Murder, he did James Stewart in Anatomy of a Murder. Uh, I think uh, in addition, there was a Sondheim piece that was uh, sort of a whodunit. The last uh, play that Sondheim wrote for Broadway was called Getting Away with Murder. Mm-hmm. And he did a drawing of that. So murder has been in his portfolio the entire time. Right. And uh, it's not, I mean, most, I guess all of these are murders, but it's more about the scandal and the conspiracy theories that come up around them. Um, and then if they are unsolved, obviously that's a scandal. Well, in in, in almost every case, I think every case, there's, uh, there's somebody not, dies. Okay, okay. This is what I wanted to say. There's death in every story. Whether there's <laughs> murder in every story, that is debatable. I am going to save you from listing all the drawings he did with death in the title. <laughs> oh, there's a lot of those. Death Trap. Oh, there's Death Trap. Uh, death of... Death of a Salesman. Death of a Salesman, of course. Mm-hmm. Wow, how could I forget yeah, that? that was the easy one. Uh, I... There are plenty of those, right. but we're not gonna. We won't belabor the point. And we've got a bunch, so let's get let's get started. Um, we're going to start at the beginning of Hollywood, really. I mean, really close to it, very much, much so. Um, with uh, a classic scandal, Hollywood scandal, Fatty Arbuckle. Change the whole nature of Hollywood. Excuse me, Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't like to be called Fatty, is what I've read. But he was advertised that way, and he made yes. a living being called fatty. Yes. No, that's true. He was a big man. Yes, very big, very large. And uh, he was originally hired because of his size and because he was, you know, it was funny. But he was also very graceful and agile despite his size, and that's what made it so funny. If you've never seen some of his early uh, one and two reelers, they are very funny. Mm-hmm. Uh, the classic visual gags. Um, you get the sense of if you've seen Law and Hardy, some of that is based on what Fatty Arbuckle had done several right. years before. Right. Um, he was also uh, not just a great actor, but he was a he was a businessman. He 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 got other people involved. He really helped Buster Keaton get break into the movies. Mm. 
you know, gave him his first part in a movie. Interesting, interesting. So he was a, a pretty big deal. He was more popular than Chaplin in 1920 when he signed a contract with Paramount for a million dollars a year, a three-year contract with a million dollars a year, which and that's, is equal to like 14 million in today's money. It's exactly. out of control. It's totally out of control. Uh, so he was. He decided to celebrate, and he and his friends Lowell Sherman and Freddie Fishback went up to San Francisco to party hard. So they're up in San Francisco for a three-day weekend um, at the St. Francis Hotel. Suite 1219 was Fatty's room. <laughs> and the party is going strong, and the booze begins to run out. Remember, this is Prohibition. Right. Um, so uh, I guess it was – who won out? I guess it was Fishback went to the Palace Hotel, which was right next door, and he ran into a couple of lovely ladies. Oh, Always yeah. a good day. <laughs> Always. Uh, Alice Bla- Blake, Maude Delmont, and Virginia Rappe. And we believe her name is pronounced Rappe. We looked it up? We did, yeah, because I just thought it was rap. But anyway, uh, they go back to the room with them. They've got more alcohol. And Maude Delmont uh, eventually claims that Arbuckle dragged Rappe into his room, sexually assaulted her, and crushed her under his weight. Um, he then leaves the suite and tours the Napa Valley and then goes back to Los Angeles. Three days later, Rappe dies. Um, and reporters end up coming to Arbuckle's home. And that's how he is informed that she has died and that he is being charged with her murder. Right. And the only person that we can attest to any of this right. is uh, Maud Del Monte. Who does have a record of accusing wealthy rich men of raping women hmm. to kind of blackmail them <clears throat> and she was also a woman of questionable virtue was she Def- not well if she's falsely claiming rape from these men yes she is of questionable virtue but i think there were other things as well that you know led people to not really believe her story too much um and she couldn't really keep her sh- her story straight either and supposedly party goers uh, attest that she was actually in lowell sherman's suite at the time of this whole incident taking place. So she couldn't have seen anything anyway. Exactly, exactly. So the physicians who saw Rappe wanted to admit her to a sanitarium. An autopsy was performed without the coroner's approval, which some suspect was to cover up an illegal abortion. Hmm. Um, So I think Rappe was also, I mean, it comes out later that she was basically a studio hooker. Wow. Yes, and which is fine. Girls got to uh, eat. Sex work is a perfectly legitimate exactly. way to learn, earn a living eat. if that's what you want to do. Exactly. But at that time, you know, it was definitely, you know, frowned upon even more than it is today. Um, and the death certificate of Rappe reads, a paranitis ruptured bladder due to force, and that force being fatty arbuckle. Although there's no evidence of that. I mean, the only evidence of that is Maude Delmont's story right. and her ruptured bladder. Um, but, of course, Arbuckle denies this. He says his story is that he went into his room to change, to take a shower and change, found Rappe on his uh, bathroom floor sick. He transferred her to the bed and called for help. And I believe it was Blake and uh, Fishback came in. And uh, removed her clothes, put her in an ice bath to kind of get her, you know, to going revive again. Her. Exactly. Um, so that's kind of his story. Uh, she did have, I believe, she did have a history of bladder issues oh. or something of that sort. 
Um, How so it's, it, yeah, it's possible that it was just something that kind of flared up due to alcohol or, you know, whatever, whatever else might have been going on. It became a sensational news story. Definitely. Uh, this was, you have to remember that Hollywood was just starting out. It was uh, the thing that was going to corrupt people. Right. And it was children. seen as non-virtuous. Hollywood right. was. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, we know that from the stage that actors at that time who were still in vaudeville oftentimes could not howl, uh, room in the same hotels mm. as regular people. Wow. They had their own places. Wow. You know, so actors were not considered sort of uh, uh, virtuous right. or respectable people. <laughs> people to look up to. So... Uh, um, Somebody named Fatty who's earning a million dollars a year <laughs> and having a wild party in a San Francisco hotel room yeah. seems like a poster perfect, boy perfect for uh, the licentiousness of Hollywood. Right, right. So the case goes to trial. Uh, well, the grand ver- jury votes 12 to 2 to indict him on manslaughter. Uh, the prosecution actually doesn't use Delmont as a witness because she is so, her um, her integrity is so under question wow. that even the prosecution says, "Yeah, we're not going to let you uh, <laughs> say what you think happened." And the only evidence, that's evi- a bad the, sign, the, right? Exactly. <laughs> the only evidence you have is this person's testimony, but we don't think you'll believe her, so we're not going to yeah. let her testify. Yeah. Um, and the judge actually prohibits the doctors who saw Rappe from speaking. She had exonerated him, basically saying, "You know, he didn't do it." Um, but it was, uh, you can't cross-examine that witness, so it's hearsay, and it's not allowed in court. So... the Wait, so the doctors were, uh, uh, could testify that... The doctors that... could not. The doctors couldn't, I'll tell you this, the doctors couldn't speak at trial because they were telling the jury what Rappe had said. Rappe could not oh. be cross-examined, so she can't speak. Understandable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is hearsay. Yeah. So uh, that was hearsay. Um, There were 96 witnesses, which is really not good because it leads to, uh, you know, so many different stories that could arise from all those people, which leads to even more reasonable doubt, which is all the jury needed. After 41 hours, uh, the jury votes 10 to 2 for acquittal. There's a mistrial. Wow. Then there's a second trial. So this is March 1922. Oh, we forgot to say this was uh, September 1921. Right. So March 1922, they're going fast back then. Right. Nowadays, it takes forever to get something to go to trial. Trust me. But now it's March 22. We're on the second trial. Um, Arbuckle's defense attorney was so confident that the evidence spoke for itself that Arbuckle didn't testify at this trial. And the jury ended up, um, the jury ended up voting 10-2 for conviction. So the complete opposite of the first trial. Wow. There's another mistrial. um, And then at... And during this whole time, Mm -hmm. the press is... Is really grilling him. Yeah, I mean, the, he's guilty in the papers. He he is the worst thing that Hollywood has ever produced. Right. right. <laughs> uh, so a third uh, trial in 1922. This time Arbuckle does testify again, and the defense finally goes after Rappe's character. Arbuckle hadn't wanted his defense attorneys to, you know, say that she was uh, a studio hooker or anything like that. He was so confident that you know he knew he didn't do anything wrong, and she didn't either. But in this third trial, the defense finally kind of attacks her character. And uh, he's acquitted after just minutes of deliberation. Wow. Yeah. And and it is amazing because, you know, the stories that came out, uh, there were all kinds of stories about what supposedly happened. Right. That not only did he crush her under 
his weight, but that he stuck objects in her. Right. I mean, it's it's pretty horrible what right. they came up with. And there's with. basically no evidence. I mean, the idea. I mean, we live in a world where we feel like the press is trying to be objective. Mm-hmm. At that, at at this time, they're just trying to sell newspapers, right. and we know that sex sells and crime sells, and it, like they say, if it bleeds, it mm-hmm. leads. Mm-hmm. So this was a perfect thing to be a front page story. For months. Right, right. And of course, Fatty Arbuckle couldn't work during this time. No. His contract was terminated because he was unable to work because, you know, he was being charged with murder. Right. Um, so they invoked, uh, I forget what it's called, but non... non oh, the morality clause. Is that what it is? Yeah, yeah. He's like not performing, so they terminate his contract. Sure. Um, and the the side effect of all of this is um, they they hire the Motion Picture uh, Distributors Association hires a guy by the name of Will Hayes mm. uh, to start being sort of the the cop uh, in in uh, Hollywood, right. uh, and eventually that leads to the Hayes Code, which mm-hmm. wasn't actually come around until I mean while it's it started, it doesn't really become the law of the land until 1934. Mm. So. Uh, all those movies that are 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 done before that, right. before 1934, are considered pre-code. Right. Um, they and, could be a little more risque. Oh, they were definitely <laughs> a lot more risque. Um, Hirschfeld uh, used to laugh about the Hayes Code. He would say that if you sh- you couldn't show two people kissing unless the man had his hat on. Right. I think the woman had a hat on, have a hat on too. Right. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised. And and that, that they always up. slept in separate beds. And, yeah. You know, it was it, and that he, was still the Brady Bunch. Right. Yeah. Uh, so it, I mean, it really had a very lasting effect. Mm. And they used the Arbuckle case mm-hmm. as sort of the. Uh, Exhibit one and why they needed gotcha. to have this code. Gotcha. As a sidebar, speaking of separate beds, I one of my favorite movies when I was nothing personal. <laughs> yeah. Well, one of my favorite movies when I was I don't know like eleven or twelve uh, was Giant. Uh-huh. Was starring Elizabeth Taylor, Rox Hudson, and James Dean. And I always wondered, I was like, why do they sleep in different beds? Yeah. I was like, why are there two beds in the bedroom? And I just thought maybe that's how. That's how they did it back then. Men and women just slept in different beds. <laughs> but it was only in the movies. <laughs> the, the stork was bringing the baby. Yeah, so. <laughs> I was like, this is weird. Never seen this before. Anyway, um, so there's not a lot of drawings that go with Fatty Arbuckle, but there is one great one. There's a great one. And what's interesting is it's a great drawing. We don't know exactly what it was drawn for. Right. And we're not even sure of the exact date of it. Right. Because we don't have a clipping and we don't know. Um, We've dated it in 1928 just based on its style. Mm -hmm. What's interesting about it is it's very thin-lined. It's not uh, what we considered mature Hirschfeld. Right, right. It's very flat. Very flat. Yeah. I think much, very much influenced by the work of John Held mm-hmm. and his yeah, thin line drawings. That. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's a it's a terrific piece. It is. Uh, it's just I wish we knew what it was for. Yeah. And 1928 seems a little bit late for it because he would eventually make uh, two more films. 10 years later uh, after all this happened. Right, so it's like, well, I mean, it's around that time that 10 years later would be 1931. Right. Um, and he ends up dying in 1933. Um, yes. Just from a massive heart attack. So it could, it really could, there could have been a lot of things. Yeah. Um, but it's a circuit date and we don't know exactly what it was drawn for. What is interesting is once the trials end and even though he's found not guilty, of course, he is persona non grata in right. Hollywood. 
Um, he has caused a lot of problems for a lot of people. And really, the guy who really looks after him is the guy he helped break into the movies because by this point, Buster Keaton is a big star. Mm. While Hirschfeld's drawing posters for Buster Keaton films, he's not drawing the rest of the cast. He's not drawing um, Fatty Arbuckle. Right, right. Okay, so I think the jury is, I mean, the jury is out on Fatty Arbuckle. He's innocent. Well, So I don't think there's any murder here. If anybody did it, Delmont. Right. Well, she tried to take advantage of it. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So uh, our next scandal. What do you think, David? Well, it's there's a death involved. Whether it's murder is the big question. Uh, I'm excited. This one is Thomas Ince. Ooh. Who just to start does not have any drawings, but there are drawings of almost everybody else involved in the story. And who was Thomas Ince? I'm so glad you asked, David. According to the many YouTube videos and documentaries that I watched on Thomas Ince, he was uh, the hottest filmmaker of his day. Yeah, he was the father of the Western. Right. And uh, he was big on doing pictures about the Civil War, Mm -hmm. which you have to realize in the teens and the 20s was not really some ancient battle. Right. It was something that had happened 50, 60 years before. And it would be like someone today doing pictures about the 60s. About Vietnam. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly right. About Vietnam is a perfect example. Yep. Uh, so he was a big, a big shot. Um, oh, well, I mean, his studios, he's the first one to sort of create assembly line filmmaking. Right. He's the first one to put the producer at the top of the chart mm. for making movies because mm. up until this point, it's the director and the cameraman. They call all the shots. Gotcha. But it's Ince who, who makes the producer responsible for the film mm. from start to finish. Interesting. Uh, he's the one who hires... he. A screenwriter. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it seems so crazy that these things had to be invented, but they had to be invented. Right. And Thomas Ince is really responsible for, responsible for those. His studios um, that he built, uh, Inceville and some of the others, still stand today. And right. they're used by Sony and, and uh, Culver Pictures. Mm-hmm. He's used all kinds of ones. So uh, while he, he started off in... Uh, westerns and civil war dramas he would eventually drift over to uh sort of social dramas mm. he he adapts uh eugene o'neill's anna, anna christie Christy. yeah the other big name in this story is william randolph hearst uh, yeah he's uh he's a huge figure right. in early 20th century because he is he is the model of the press mogul Yes, and I actually last night just started a new audiobook uh, my husband got me for Christmas. It's called American Heiress. It's about the kidnapping of Patricia Hearst. Who is his granddaughter. Exactly. And I've only read the first five chapters, but I got a lot of details about William Randolph Hearst, which just reinforced <laughs> what I had already researched for this podcast. There so now go. I feel like I'm a William Randolph Hearst expert. He owned 28 newspapers and 12 magazines. And he was also kind of responsible for the coining the term yellow journalism. Sure. And uh, his thing was uh, with the Spanish-American War, you send the pictures, I'll make the war. Right. Um, so that, that was uh, his thing. He was married, but he fell in love with an actress, Marion Davies. Right. He saw on Broadway. Correct. Correct. In New York. And obviously, it's on Broadway. And he contacted Thomas Ince to make her a star. He was giving Ince a contract... To put Davies in the movies. And if you want to get a sense of who William Randolph Hearst uh, was, um, there are certainly other documentaries about him, but the best 
one really one of the best sort of versions of his life story is Orson Welles' Citizen Kane, which is very loosely based on uh, Hearst. And Hearst, of course, hated it, but uh, (laughs) very much it was that's that's what it's based on. Yeah, gotcha. Uh, So that's how those two are are linked together. Hearst wants to make uh, Davies a star. So, uh, on uh, Int's birthday, November 16th, 1924, uh, they were going to celebrate his birthday and sign the contract um, aboard Hearst's yacht, which was the Oneida. And the yacht was a perfect place to hold a party at this time because, again, we're still in Prohibition. Right. And there was something called the three-mile limit. Oh, yeah. You're in international waters. Right. So you could drink so you to could your heart's drink. content. Yeah. So, uh, so they were on a yacht. <clears throat> Prohibition... Uh, just so you know, made everybody criminals. Right. Uh, Hirschfeld said that uh, he drank during Prohibition because then it was patriotic. When did he, where did he go to drink? Oh, well, you know, he was in New York and he went to speakeasies. I know, but we don't know any in particular. Well, we know that uh, he he talked one time about going to Jack and Charlie's, which later became the 21 Club, and he would see the police chief in there or the mayor. (laughs) That's uh, from Manhattan Oasis, right? Right. Isn't there a police officer in one of the drawings? Oh, sure. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Uh, So it's not... you know, he was not a drunk, and, you know, he didn't right. drink excessively. But as I said, when he was growing up, the idea that you were prohibiting drinking alcohol just seemed so crazy to him. Yeah. And to be a good American, he felt like you had to drink. Had to do it. That's funny. There may have been two other people on the yacht that night. It's who debated. would they be? Uh, Luella Parsons, who was America's first gossip columnist. Wow. First in gossip is mm-hmm. what you want first on your tombstone. In 1923, she signed a contract with the New York American, which was owned by Hearst. Yes, she had started her gossip column in 1914 in a Chicago newspaper, and Hearst bought that paper and realized that people wanted to read about gossip of movie stars and really started, it became a thing after that. Mm -hmm. And then the other person uh, debated is Charles Chaplin. I think everybody who's listening to this podcast knows who Charlie Chaplin is. The man who needs no introduction. Yeah, if you've listened to our other episodes, he's basically mentioned in every episode. I thought he was the man with both feet in the cloud. Oh. Okay, so let's move on. Uh, so those people were debated to be there that night. I, I think they were there. You think they were? Yes, I I'm do. on the fence. Oh, uh, well. I don't know. It's... All right. So the story goes, um, Hearst awoke in the middle of the night to see Chaplin intimate with Davies. Uh, Hearst pulls out his uh, famous silver revolver and shoots at Chaplin. It's not Chaplin. It's Thomas Ince. Bum, 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 bum. The, the two men did look alike. They were of similar height and build, and they both had that curly salt and pepper hair. Oh, really? And if you see the two, two pictures of them, they do look strikingly similar. And if it's in the middle of the night and right, you see and someone dark. who is uh, making the moves or is intimate with your girlfriend, you're not spending a lot of time on identification. Right, right. So uh, we've got somebody, you know, allegedly with a gunshot wound. They returned to the mainland and witnesses claim they saw blood on his shirt. Um, but everybody just said he was feeling under the weather. Mm. Uh, he was not taken to the hospital because Ince wanted to recuperate at home. According to who? This was according to Hearst. Uh, I believe. The- I believe it was accor- according to, this is just one, you know, this is one story. Okay. According to the this side of the story, the side that there's- Sources say. Yes, yeah, sources say. Um, 
that he wanted to recuperate at home. <clears throat> uh, Davies is not talking, and Chaplin and Parsons claim they weren't there. Right. So there's basically no one, you know, to say anything. Ince did have a history of bad indigestion, and he had an ulcer, which uh, means he was not allowed to drink or eat rich foods, which he was probably doing both of. Probably excessively. Right, right. Um, So there is that part of the story. Um, The other kind of side that says there was no murder says that uh, Ince turned blue, he was vomiting blood, and he had a minor coronary. So that's kind of the the non-murder side of it. On the death certificate, uh, it lists his cause of death as heart failure. At home, uh, he spoke with family in his final days. His, um, Ince, uh, excuse me, Ince's granddaughter says that her father remembers speaking to his father, Thomas Ince, in those final days at home. He wow. remembers him being alive. And it's also rumored that that chaplain had visited him as well at home. Wow. Yes. Uh, So he died three days later on November 19th, and there's little in the newspapers about his death. Not surprisingly, since Hearst is running the newspapers. Right. Uh, So Ince's wife, Eleanor, ended up selling the studio to Cecil B. DeMille, um, and Hearst and Davies remained lovers until his death in 1951. Hmm. Yeah. So I, I don't know about that one either. It sounds a little crazy. Well, especially didn't, but if, didn't W. Griffith, D.W. Griffith say that if you want to see Hearst turn white, mention the name Thomas Ince? Yes, he did. That's a little, it's, you know, I like to call your stories tall tales. That's a little. It's apocryphal. Yeah. Yeah. Apocryphal. Uh, it would be cool if it were true. But the thing I have with this one, this case is, it seems like he survives quite a few days and if that gunshot was any, where was that gunshot wound? Right. That um, just seems like quite a long time to be alive. Well, again, we're, we're taking it all on that he survived a couple of days. Yeah. We don't really know. He's at home. Right. And But if Parsons and Chaplin were there, that's pretty incriminating for them to say, no, we weren't there. We don't know anything. Well, what would be the evidence? You know, that they were there. It mm. would really only be eyewitness accounts. I'm sure Hearst could pay off all of his crew members. Yeah. And it, Hearst was someone you did not want to cross. Right. I mean, he could really make or break a career. Right. That I was mean, what he was known for. Right. <laughs> yeah. And he was a vengeful person. Yeah. He, he definitely uh, followed his passions. Mm. So I don't think he wanted to get on the wrong side of them. Yeah. Uh, now, Luella Parsons becomes a huge, huge, uh, important figure in Hollywood after this. And there is reason, there are people who say that is because Hearst sort of paid her off, Mm. made her a big deal because Mm. she won't say anything about this. Interesting. You know, it's a trade-off. Chaplin didn't really need anything. He he needed to not be involved in a scandal. Right, right. And so he he was successful in that regard. Mm -hmm. And Marion Davies was not only in love with Hearst, but she owed her career to to him at right. this point. Um, Davies was already appearing in films, uh, and Hirschfeld would first draw her in 1927 in the start of a very successful series, uh, Tilly the Toiler. <laughs> Which is a hilarious name. Yes. <laughs> and he would draw her again, only one more time he would mm-hmm. draw her, in 1929 in an MGM film called The Hollywood Review. Uh, it's a great drawing. Uh, it shows Joan Crawford and Douglas Fairbanks and uh, uh, Buster Keaton in a totally yeah. crazy outfit. Um, and the funny thing is Joan Crawford is 
shown with an umbrella and it's raining. She's singing this new song called Singing in the Rain. Oh. And, of course, that later gets to be the uh, title song to the great film of that name. Right. But that's where it was first uh, written for. Hmm, interesting. Hirschfeld drew Hearst twice. Right. We have records of it from his account books. We do not have any pictures of them. Yes. So you're going to have to take a word for it. Yeah, it's a shame, but that's the way it goes sometimes, especially with these early drawings like this. Right. It's exactly. very early. And then uh, Chaplin, we chose to include some of his earlier drawings of Chaplin, he, more from the period. So if this all happened in, in late 1924, the very first recorded drawing that Hirschfeld does of Chaplin is in 1926, and it's not a drawing. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he comes back from Paris, and he decides to take an etching class at the Art Students League in New York mm. uh, with Eugene Fitch, uh, and he produces a small body of etchings, uh, half of almost all of which are scenes from Morocco mm. uh, that he had just been back from. Oh, interesting. Uh, but he did one caricature etching, and it's uh, it's obviously a test. He, he's, he's fooling around with different things, and there's a bunch of different heads. Mm-hmm. But it tells you who were the biggest stars at that time because in the center of it is Chaplin. Mm. But there's uh, William S. Hart, who mm-hmm. was a famous Western uh, actor. There's... Um, Eddie Canner. Eddie right, Canner's yeah. in there. Uh, Patsy Kelly, oh, right. who was a big star at the time. Yep. So uh, it, these are the sort of seminal Hirschfeld uh, caricatures. Mm-hmm. He had only been doing uh, caricatures for a little bit more than a year. Mm. Um, he, but when he took this class, he had not published a caricature specifically for the newspaper. He hadn't done his first theatrical caricature right. yet. That would be December 1926. Exactly. Yep. Uh, so, and then the first time he draws Chaplin for public is the following year, 1927, when Pathé re-releases his film Sunnyside. Yes, I love that. Uh, That was my first Chaplin film I ever watched because I had seen the poster in the archive. And I said, I should watch this movie, see if it's any good. You really fulfilled the the mission of that poster. The poster was to make you see the film. Make you watch the movie. (laughs) And you did it. So it was really funny. I was laughing out loud. It's going. Uh, it's the my favorite scene is uh, where he puts all the sugar in the coffee, and then it basically just turns to pudding. Uh, anyway. Of course, and and Hirschfeld would draw, continue to draw uh, Chaplin. Um, oh yes. But it, uh, other than a few drawings around the Great Dictator, mm-hmm. he almost always drew him in the way that we think of Chaplin with the bowler, the, the cane, the little right. tramp. Our next case is the case of Thelma Todd. Thelma Todd? Who is she? She was a very beautiful and talented comedian who uh, worked for Hal Roach Studio on the MGM lot. And she partnered with Charlie Chase, Laurel and Hardy, and the Marx Brothers. And it was reported that she made the Marx Brothers laugh, (laughs) which is a big deal. Without a doubt. <laughs> yes. She played, she was a comedian and she mm-hmm. played mostly with comedians. Yes. Uh, she was in a number of films that Hirschfeld drew, although Hirschfeld did not draw her in mm, them. Interesting. Uh, Law and Hardy, a, a fine mess. Her, in fact, her last film uh, that was released in 1936, uh, Bohemian Girl, Hirschfeld did uh, the whole series of posters for oh, that wow. film. So Todd was having an affair with a man named Roland West. He was a filmmaker and a director, correct? Right. Yes. Um, and he was married. Obviously. Right. He was, he was famous for his sort of early film noirish uh, 
movies in the 20s and 30s. Gotcha, gotcha. Uh, so they had adjoining apartments over a restaurant that Todd owned. Does mm. that sound right? Yeah. Um, they kind of uh, were adjoining because there was a glass uh, sliding door that connected the two apartments. Right. <clears throat> so this was their kind of secret hideaway where they lived. So the story goes that uh, on the night of December, I believe it's December 14th, but it could be the 15th, she goes over, Todd goes to Roland West's house and demands that he come out with her. She's a party girl. She wants to party. Right, and he doesn't like that. He followed her and locked the garage door so that she couldn't get out. This was at a friend's house. I believe so. That's the impression that I get. It's very, very close to the restaurant and where she lived. Right. But the woman in question whose house it was was actually a former lover of Roland West. Mm. So it looks like he was at that house. I would think he would be aware of it. Sure. Um, And she was found December 16th, 1935, slumped over in her car in that garage. Dun, 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 dun. Exactly. She was discovered by the maid, uh, and the maid remembers the the door being ajar, slightly. The garage door. Correct. Uh, Thelma Todd was dressed for a night on the town, complete an evening gown, fur coat, and jewelry. Um, Mm. So she was ready to go out. It just appears she didn't make it that far. Now, the key here about the maid finding the door slightly ajar, why is that important? Why? Well, because the story goes that Roland West had locked her in the garage. But now the garage door is open. So this part of the story says that Roland West went to the garage in the morning to check on her, found her dead, and, you know, panicked and walked away before he remembered, you know, he didn't remember to lock the garage door back. So that's kind of the... She died of carbon monoxide poisoning. Yes, the, the cause of death was accidental carbon monoxide poisoning. So um, that's that story. And then the other part of this, the other kind of conspiracy side involves the mafia, as many conspiracy theories do. She was uh, Lucky Luciano, who was big in Hollywood at the time, wanted her restaurant because it was a big nightclub and restaurant where glamorous Hollywood ladies and leading men hung out it was called Thelma Todd's sidewalk cafe that's right (laughs) uh he had wanted that restaurant Todd told him you'll get it over my dead body Luciano said that can be arranged now this was the night before she died that sounds apocryphal this does sound a little apocryphal but look we have to give all sides of the story right Um, then the rumor goes that uh, Todd's driver drove her back to the restaurant a car pulls up and demands for her to get in and the rumor has it that that was Lucky Luciano and that he ended up killing her now on the coroner's report there is no sign of physical violence or anything like that she has a small cut on her lip which could have easily happened from her passing out from the carbon monoxide and hitting her head on the steering wheel Right. Um, Who hasn't done that? Exactly. <laughs> so uh, I I discredit the Lucky Luciano side. It sounds like, to me, my final impression is that she was locked in the garage, had the car on to keep herself warm, maybe, and just didn't realize well, she would die from carbon monoxide poisoning. She was also drinking. She was drinking, and that makes the carbon monoxide take effect a lot quicker. She had a very high blood alcohol content. Her blood alcohol content was 0.13. Okay, well, that's uh, more that's it's public <laughs> drunkenness is yes. 0.08. Yeah. Yeah. So it's almost twice the legal limit. And she was very small as well. I mean, she was a skinny lady. 
Right. Choose. Yeah. So um, that all takes effect a lot faster. Um, but she could have gone out to the car for whatever reason and mm-hmm. fallen asleep and, mm-hmm. and killed mm-hmm. herself. Yeah. Uh, the door being open ajar would say, well, maybe that didn't happen. But if it wasn't open that much, maybe it could still do the damage. Yeah, definitely. So that one, it, I don't know. Accident? Maybe. Isn't it true that West would eventually confess to the crime? I did read a report that said he did confess on his deathbed to killing Todd. Um, but at the time, I believe he had kind of lost it, and his story didn't really add up. Mm. So take that for what it is. Uh, well, she was a she. As I said, she was a big, she was a big star, yeah, sort of in a small way, mm-hmm. in Hollywood uh, and certainly in films. Uh, if she had lived longer, I think we would know more of her. Definitely. Uh, Hirschfeld drew her twice. Mm. One in a great uh, short for First National called "Vamping Venus." <laughs> With Charles Murray. It's, it's a really a nice great drawing. drawing. Yeah. And uh, we found it in an old press book. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Warner Brothers press book, first national press book. And then in 1934, uh, there was a collection of Hal Roach shorts that were released to theaters as sort of a full-length film called Hail Hal Roach, mm. which was, I think, celebrating his 20 years yeah. making movies. Yeah. And Hirschfeld did an incredible poster for that. That had all the stars of Hal Roach films, including Law and Hardy and, and Patsy Kelly and mm-hmm. Thelma Todd and all these different people in it. Right. Obviously, well, Roland West doesn't have any drawings. No, never drawn. And uh, are there any mafia drawings at all? Sure. There's uh, uh, Murder, Inc. Uh, there's a drawing. I mean of, of real mafia. No, no. It was a, it's a, oh, a, oh, the, oh. The, the article was called Murder, Inc. Oh. And it was a New York Times magazine drawing. Uh, and then one could argue that, you know, the gangsters in Sinatra. in Guys and Dolls. Oh, that's true. That's true. Yeah. Good point. Good point. So, and he drew some uh, uh, speakeasy owners in the early 30s mm. uh, for Stage Magazine who were probably mobbed up. Right. right. Uh, did he know any gangsters? Right. I'm sure Hirschfeld knew some gangsters. Mm. Uh, but at the same point, that wasn't There's a big no part of There's no drawing of Jimmy Hoffa or... Gene Connor, anything like that? No. Okay. No. But <laughs> Siegel, so. you know, nothing yeah. like that. Okay. So the final uh, Hollywood scandal that is going to conclude this episode, uh, it kind of rounds out the old Hollywood scandals, as it were. Exactly. Is Lana Turner. It was rumored that Lana Turner was discovered at the uh, lunch counter at, at uh, Schraps. Schwab's. Oh, Schwab's lunch counter. And uh, that is... It became this sort of Hollywood legend. Right, right. And, you know, girls would hang out at, at Schwab's mm-hmm. in the hopes that they would get discovered. Right. And, and that's close to the truth, uh, yeah. but it's not. She was actually discovered at Coke at the Top Hat Cafe by William Wilkerson, who was the publisher of The Hollywood Reporter. Uh, he asked if she would like to be in Mostard Pictures, and she said, gee, I'd have to ask my mother. <laughs> I believe a- that's apocryphal, too. <laughs> Yes, uh, a lot of this is apocryphal, if you haven't noticed. Well, early Hollywood, like Broadway uh, and anything of that time, as we said, the the connection to the truth was not nearly as important. It had to make good copy. It didn't necessarily have to be true. Mm, So when you read these press releases uh, of early Hollywood, there's no reason to believe that those are the truth. That's the history that we have and that we can only go on, but... Almost always, it's not true. Right. 
So Lana Turner was in between marriages in 1957, 1958. Um, she began dating another mafia man, Johnny Stampinato. He was abusive to her and often threatened her with a gun, just reminding her that it was fully loaded. Wow. Yeah, there's a story that he went to a film set she was working on in London uh, with Sean Connery and started physically abusing her there. Connery ended up threatening uh, Stampinato back. That brings us to April 1958. Turner was nominated for her first Oscar for Best Actress. And what film was that? Uh, Peyton Place. It was released in 1957. She was very excited, obviously. uh, But she knew she couldn't take Stompanato to the ceremony with her. That's just bad press. Right. You can't take a mafia guy with you. So she invites uh, her press rep, Glenn Rose, to go to the ceremony with her. But Johnny's mad about it. Oh, yeah. And Stompanato is not happy. Right. So uh, she comes home to find Stampinato in the bedroom, and she basically says, get out of here right now. And he's not having any of it. Uh, he starts threatening her once again um, and threatens to cut her face off. He said, that's how you make your money. I'm going to get rid of it. So that was, this is the night she comes home from the Oscars. Right. She had just gone to the Oscars. She didn't win. And you think it can't get any worse after you don't win the Oscar. Right. <laughs> don't worry. It does. Turner had a 14-year-old daughter in the house, Cheryl Crane, uh, from a previous marriage. This sounds like it's going to get worse. It does get a lot worse. <laughs> uh, she was 14 years old, and they had a troubled relationship like many you know, wealthy Hollywood uh, you know, children. They were raised by nannies and taught at boarding schools and so naturally the career mommy, came first for exactly Alana. mommy issues daddy issues you name it right. but cheryl hears her 14 year old daughter hears stampinato threatening her mother she goes to the kitchen to get a butcher knife Ooh. and returns upstairs and, and stands outside the bedroom stampinato opens the bedroom door turns around and walks directly into the knife Ooh, what a way to go yeah he falls on the floor and is, is, if he's not dead, he's dying. Right. Uh, Cheryl calls her father um, right away. Lana ends up calling her mother. Her mother calls a doctor. The doctor comes over and tells Lana, you better get a good lawyer. Then I, that nobody call calls the police. the police. Then they call the look. This is a big scandal. Well, it's Hollywood, you know. Well, they know that they're in some deep doo doo here. Right. <laughs> Normal people might call the police, but you don't know until it happens to you. So, finally, the police are called. There's very little blood at the scene, which I mean, it was not a violent attack by any means. He literally walked into the knife. Wow. Now the real kind of scandal is: Did Cheryl actually do it, or did Lana do it? And Cheryl's covering for her mother. Wow. Yeah, that's kind of the uh, the thought. Um, however, that's the story they tell from the get-go, is that Cheryl had the knife. Right. And that's not a lot of time to get your story together. So you're saying Lana threw her own daughter under the bus? Or no, do you think I'm not she saying was, that. Uh, I'm saying people think that. Okay. I'm saying that there is a, a, you know, not a conspiracy, but there is a theory that Lana actually killed him. Right. And Cheryl takes the fall. Um, because, so here's the thing with Cheryl. She's a beautiful 14-year-old girl who, right. you know, is very innocent, doesn't know anything. Um, she is not allowed to testify at her own trial. 
because she's underage. Right. So Lana ends up taking the stand. Remember, she was just nominated for Best Actress. In a dramatic film. Exactly. So that's where I think people kind of get that theory of their acting. Right. This isn't the real story. Um, She has ended up, uh, I think it was... um, she was acquitted, and I think the jury called it justifiable homicide after only 25 minutes. Wow. Uh, yeah. Um, Cheryl's grandmother was granted custody of her, but Lana had full visitation rights. So it seems like maybe just the grandmother's house is a better place to be. Right. And so she would continue with her career. Lana yes. continued with her yeah. career. Mm-hmm. And instead of nannies, she had a grandmother. Exactly. Cheryl, Cheryl did. Yeah. And Cheryl, I think, struggled for years with drug, alcohol, and and mental problems but um she's she seems fine now and happy to tell her story and Hmm. she stands by no that's what happened really well of course she has to yes she does but uh it seems to me like that is really what happened now herschel drew lana turner uh, on four different occasions. Mm-hmm. Uh, the earliest being, it's a wonderful uh, image, it's a trade ad for a film called Weekend at the Waldorf. Mm-hmm. And I remember finding it when was doing research for the Hirschfeld's Hollywood uh, exhibition at the out of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. And, uh, you know, just, just turn a page and see a Hirschfeld drawing you've never seen before. I don't know what other people do for fun, but that just makes my day. <laughs> Uh, and then the next time he drew her was uh, nine years later mm-hmm. for Collier's. It's a drawing of uh, Lana Turner, Marilyn Monroe, and Ava Gardner. And this was actually Hirschfeld's first drawing of Marilyn Monroe. Right. Who we will talk about later. Yeah. And then the next two drawings, again, are uh, a couple years later, 61, for a film called By Love Possessed. This was a United Artists film, mm. um, and Hirschfeld did these drawings to promote the films. And the other one was Madame X in 1966. Yeah. That's my favorite Lana Turner drawing. Oh, it's a great one where yeah. she's at the center of it. Her her head's at the center, and these men yeah. are all around her. Yeah, that's a good one. Probably a little bit of her life. Yeah, no, definitely. I think she was married seven times. Really? I believe so. All right, so that concludes our um, first episode of Hollywood Scandals. Right. Old Hollywood Scandals. There are a lot more, and we will cover them in the future. Yeah, and uh, these four, you know, so we've gone now from 1921 with Fatty Arbuckle up to 1958 with Lana Turner. Right, and while there aren't a ton of drawings, there are some Mm -hmm. really wonderful drawings. This is a wonderful collection of drawings. You'll see some very early pieces, uh, not just uh, sort of almost before caricature, but also some of his early film work, you know, whether it's the Sunnyside poster or, um, again, the Thelma Todd Vamping Venus Mm -hmm. is a drawing that must be seen. It's a really great one. Yeah. It also gives us a chance to talk about some of the people that Hirschfeld drew that we might not be able to dedicate an entire episode to. Exactly. Or don't really have anything else you know, that we can it, contribute. In the world of Hirschfeld, Lana Turner's most exciting thing right. was uh, was the murder. Yeah, right, right. And, uh, you know, Fatty Arbuckle, we just have the one drawing. Right. But it's a great drawing, so... Well, we want to thank everybody for listening. Uh, if you have uh, scandals you want to share with us, Ooh, yeah. uh, please, they should be entertainment related. Yes, yes. <laughs> we don't want to know about your personal scandals. <laughs> uh, you can uh, contact us at info at alhirschfeldfoundation.org. Yep. Uh, we're on Facebook and Twitter. or We're on Facebook, the Al Hirschfeld Foundation, Twitter and Instagram at Al Hirschfeld. 
And our website, of course, is alhirschfeldfoundation.org, where you can look up any of these drawings, although we'll have links in the show notes. But you can look up any performer or production or uh, year of uh, Hirschfeld's career or theater season. It, there's really a lot of material on there, as well as the breaking news and links to the podcast. So it's uh, if you haven't been there, take advantage of it. Yep. And uh, the podcast link is actually alhirschfeldfoundation.org slash podcasts, S for scandals. Easy one this that week. That is easy. <laughs> All right. We- Our theme music uh, uh, today, as it's been for the last couple episodes, is by Dick Hyman, the wonderful Dick Hyman. Uh, it is called Three or More Ninas. You can learn more about Dick and his music at dickhyman.com. And if you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple iTunes because that really, not only does it boost our morale, which we always like, uh, but it lets other people know about it. The more reviews a show gets and the more ratings a show gets, uh, it is shared with more people. So if you think this is something worth listening to and you want other people to do it, uh, this is the way that you can do it, just by rating and reviewing us. Right. All right. Well, thank you, and we will see you next time. We'll see you when we do.